We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Best-selling author of The Shack, Paul Young, joins Jim Lyon for real talk about trauma, the power of grace and healing, and the benefits of being present. Paul Young, we are so glad to have you at our table today, and I know that you are a uh, right here with me, I'm in central Indiana on the northeast side of Indianapolis, and you are in my home state of Washington, just uh, north of Portland. Is that right? That is exactly right. Little little town called Brush Prairie. Oh, and Brush Prairie. Um, oh, I, I, I was it. born in I was born in Grand Prairie, Alberta, and I think I'm going to die in Brush Prairie, Washington. <laughs> well, There's there, there are worse places, I suppose, than that. But uh, for me, uh, Washington State has a certain magical charm. So I grew up in Seattle, uh, just a couple blocks from the edge of Puget Sound with the fog rolling in and the mm. fresh scent of evergreen mixed with salt air. So you are in my old neighborhood, as it were. And I'm just, I'm just telling you, Paul, never take that for granted, no matter where oh, you are. I, I don't. The more I travel, the more I like it here. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this area, as you know, has, has more shades of green than any other place I've ever been in. Well, and, uh, I, I, I just, find that. But, yep. you know, I, I probably shouldn't go on and on about uh, the Pacific Northwest of the United States because, I mean, some people go out there and it's not their cup of tea. I get it's not for everyone, but it works for some of us. But, you know, you just described being born in Alberta and now you've landed in Washington State. Uh, you've, you've had a lot of years in what I would call the Portland Metro, uh, mm -hmm. uh, which is adjacent to Washington, uh, separated by the Columbia River there. Uh, but you've also lived uh, in far and exotic places because uh, you grew up, spent some years of your childhood in some like National Geographic quality kind of experience. Oh, things that have been in National Geographic, you tell, know, like uh, the Highlands of New Guinea. Tell so, me about that. The I was a, what's I the was story? a year old. Yeah. Uh, why were you there and, and what happened? Okay, so I, at, at a year, 10 months actually, my parents, I was the firstborn, they packed up and... Uh, moved as missionaries to the highlands of New Guinea into a tribal culture that had never been um, really exposed to the West or to white folk or any of that. And, um, and they went in there to, you know, preach the gospel, of course, uh, but also as medical missionaries and also um, trying to see if there was a way to help uh, some of the issues that were taking place in there. They had a disease there called yaws, which is like leprosy on steroids. And if it, if it hadn't been for people like my mom, who was a nurse and penicillin, it would have, it would have just devastated the valley. And we had a large tribe. New Guinea is very unique in certain respects. Um, on this island that you'll find just at north, yep, you got it on the map, just that? north. I yeah, didn't introduce you to him. There's a guy named Matt Derby. He's our video jockey. So while we're talking, he's going to pull stuff up. But there's there's the nice. map of New Guinea, right? And it's right above Australia. And uh, we were on the west side of the halfway line. The other half is, Pap on the right-hand side is Papua New Guinea, which is now uh, independent and was a Dutch colony. The left 
uh, full of indigenous tribal people is now part of Indonesia because they annexed it while we were there. So I have a Canadian passport. My sister was born under Dutch control because it was a Dutch colonized half of that Mm -hmm. island. Um, And then my brother Tim was born under UN control, one of the only times in history. And then my youngest brother, Stephen, was born under Indonesian control. So we had four children with four different passports. All of the same family at the same address. Uh, Yeah. So, and New Guinea has over 800 unrelated language groups. Like, there is no common language among the indigenous tribal people. And, um, And our tribe was large, one of the largest in New Guinea. It's when we were there was probably 20 to 40,000 people over a hundred square miles and they spoke Donny. So that's uh, their dialect plus the name of their tribe. And they were a, a family centered warring village uh, hierarchical chief structure uh, community that was very agrarian and they practiced ritualistic cannibalism. So the, the Valley that we landed in was called cannibal Valley. Oh and, goodness. uh, and so that's the world I grew up in and thought oh, was normal. I mean, and, you know, as you're describing it, it is a, a kind of page out of National Geographic. Uh, mm-hmm. It sounds so exotic, like a great adventure. Looking back on it, are you, is your recollection is, oh man, I was privileged to live in this uh, amazing world that nobody gets to see. Or looking back on it, was it a challenge of a kind that you wish you could have skipped? No, I'm I'm thrilled to have grown up there. Um, there were so many things that were powerfully positive about that kind of world, and um, no, t- you know, no technology. No, uh, there were books. That's kind of where I grew up, and I, I lived inside of books. But um, but my friendships, my first language was Donnie. And when I was five years old, when Wycliffe came in to translate the language, I was the informant. Because I could speak Donnie fluently yeah. in English, because my parents spoke English, and um, mm. and then I mean, when I was sent to boarding school at six, it was the first time I really was consciously aware that I wasn't a Donnie, that I was actually a, a Mungat, which is a ghost person, and ghosts mm. are white notoriously. So, you know, and basically in their tribal culture, it's it's people without substance, you know, ghosts. Yes, yes, right. But the the dark side of all that is that. Um, you know, I had some tragedy as a child as a result. And part of it was uh, where the culture was at. Part of it was we were considered to be the enemies by the the ruling system. And so there were a lot of, they decided, I mean, I was at five years old, I had kind of free reign and my parents were busy doing uh, And you felt stuff. safe that they felt safe with you there. Well, I felt safe because I thought I was a Donnie. Yeah. Yes. You know, I had a struggle with my dad because he was um he was a violent disciplinarian and, and, and so I, he terrified me, but, and I was around the conversation the Donnie were having when they were trying to decide whether to kill my parents or not, but I never and you could understand in, in danger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause I, yes. you know, and I was a kid playing with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, about five years old, that's when sexual abuse began in the tribal context. And then when I was sent away to boarding school at six, then uh, at missionary boarding school, um, um, it was uh, sexual abuse there as well, but it was peer on peer, older, older boys on younger boys, and and um, and Paul. so there's that devastating side of the story, and so I've got this real mixed um, memory um, with regard to both the beautiful and 
the the hurtful, the trauma, the damaging side. Paul, you've, you've just like opened a window that takes my breath away. You're telling me that as a young boy, at the age of five, and then by six, you experienced two traumatic events, it seems to me, that would crush most people, uh, or, or maybe paralyze them emotionally. And that would be sexual abuse as a child, and also being divorced from your family functionally by being sent away to a boarding school. Uh, I, I'm just trying to put my arms around that. That sounds like a lot to process as a child. Yeah, and children don't process it. They just find a way to survive or they just curl up and die. I mean, you can put 10 children in front of the same abuse and 10 lives will go 10 totally different directions, you know, because of the capacity of the child and the coping mechanisms and how that how that particular child is wired. And um, and so me, I I... I turned it in terms of becoming a performance addict because of the because of the sense of separation and I never felt connected to my parents they they were those people they I I had identified myself in terms of the, my tribal connection mm-hmm. and and that was a greater tearing to find out that I didn't belong there either yes, you know so yeah. there wasn't a sense of belonging to my parents there was a sense of belonging to the tribe and then even though so in a sense it was my own family that initiated the abuse and then to go to boarding school and find out I don't know this world at all and and to have the abuse continued and so you you begin to think that your body is a way to um, exchange for the bits of light like affection and approval and kindness, and and a sense of belonging, and so at I mean at six children, I remember when we lived out in um, in Boring, and uh, that's Oregon. a town in Portland, a little town, near Portland, actually. yeah, yeah, uh, town called Boring, Oregon, and, <laughs> and, it, um, and it can be I've been there. Oh, it's great. We I was there when they put in their first streetlight. Yeah, and um, so I remember at a Christmas, and and Chad, who's our firstborn, um, he. He was standing in front of the fireplace and he puts his foot up on the hearth and is standing there talking and I'm looking at him and it just, it's one of those moments that drop on you. You don't know how to process. So it, it dissipates, but I'm looking at him and I'm thinking like, he had just turned six and I'm thinking like the thought that went through was how could, how could it have been his fault? I mean, it just, bam. Yeah. And I still, at, at that time, didn't know how to process any of it. You know, I'd buried all this stuff. You know, it's, it's um, and not that I didn't remember it. it. I just reformatted inside of a theology that said, well, you're a piece of crap to begin with. So, you know, it's just, it's just part of history. And um, so I'd never really dealt with it. But if I look back, I can see so many things that were survival skills. And, and let me give you one of them because it's a very common one, and that's lying. I became a liar and a really, a really adept one. And I, be, I believe that almost all lying is not an intention to deceive first. It's a survival skill mm-hmm. to find a way to be safe. It's a protective armor. It is. And so, I mean, it's a hard one to let go because frankly, lying saved me from a lot of beatings. And, mm. 
And um, there were two things when my dad uh, was a, a, abusive in his discipline. And that, and most of the time I had no clue what he was furious about, except that I had, you know, I had done something obviously that had sent him sideways, but I would either lie to try to get my way out of it first. And when that didn't work and I knew that I was, I was going to get the beating that, that uh, I'd yell at him over and over. I'll be good. I'll be good. I'll be good. I'll be good. I just yell it, yell it, yell it, yell it. Mm -hmm. And it was a desperate plea that maybe performance was a way to somehow reduce the punishment. And if I could just promise enough. And that, you know, that kind of fear-motivated performance orientation just, it dominated my childhood. So I, I sort of disappeared as a, in fact, I don't think I experienced much anymore as a child. I was always trying to figure out how to deal with the world as it was around me. Sat in it, sadly, and so <clears throat> not a bad thing, but it turns out that I'm actually pretty smart and pretty creative. I didn't know that until I was in my 20s, hmm. but I can now see how, how being smart and being creative actually exacerbated my problem. It gave me a, a larger skill set to stay hidden. And, and hiding was, was the fundamental thing. So I never let, that's, the, that's where the shack was created, right? Well, the shack, the house on the inside. Before we get to the shack, I, I just have to probe a little bit more. How long were you at boarding school? I was there till I was almost 10. And then, then we were suddenly in the middle of a, a year, unexpectedly, we pulled up stakes and moved to Canada in the middle of winter, landed in Saskatoon From in the New middle Guinea. of a blizzard. <laughs> Which again, quite yeah. a change up. Yeah, with my shorts and t-shirt, right? Yeah. And I didn't know why. Didn't have a clue. And then in Canada, my dad became an itinerant pastor. And um, nobody would tell us what happened and why we had to leave. Um, and, uh, and so we had to make up stories, you know, just about, you know, just whatever we had to make up. And over the next years, I went to 13 schools before I graduated high school. Um, all, over the, all over Western Canada, mostly. So your, your childhood... Uh, even if it was not experienced, as many children do, uh, yeah. has a lot of challenges. I mean, the, a lot of twists and turns. Uh, you're describing a scenario where I see a, a young boy who becomes a teenager uh, coping with constant drama, it, yeah. trying to cope and survive, uh, not fully experiencing what you might call the, the freedom of, of development. You're, you're already uh, trying to create coping mechanisms in, in a very difficult environment. And then your father, in addition to the sexual abuse in your original tribal family, as it were, uh, socially, then in the boarding school, and then all of the, um, the moving about, you know, the instability of that, and, and the question marks, of, why am I here, and what happened at the last stop, and all of that. And then you described yeah. your father as a very difficult personality in your own growing up. I, I have to ask, well, what happened in that relationship? Was that ever uh, resolved in a way, or did you mm, find yourself great question. Uh, find yourself just, uh, that's the way life was, and now he's gone? Yeah, and, and let me add this, too, is my mother was a follower, very, very smart. I got my creativity from my dad, but I got my intelligence from my mom. But she was, you know, German Baptist and silent. And so she never, 
she never took a stand in my memory, you know, and I, uh, she passed away a few years ago and, and our, my relationship with my mom was much kinder uh, overall than my relationship mm-hmm. with my dad. And <clears throat> add to this little boy that, you know, he's 12 years old, come back to Canada at 10 and by 12, he's a, he's a porn addict. He, that's, you know, he's just like lost in that world and that became a significant addiction that well, played were, a role. And you were sexually awakened at an early age. Oh, wait, I mean, way too So that, I think one leads to the next often. And, and yeah, plus, plus there's a sense that, you know, the body is connected with approval and affection and, you know, um, porn is an, porn is addiction of aloneness. Like, like almost all addictions are and um, isolation where, where you, where you can imagine a relationship in which you're loved rather than take the risk of a real one because the real ones are just too painful. And, um, and so my relationship with my dad, you know, on, he is now 91 and um, on his uh, 80th birthday and, and his, his and my, I, I have his oldest sister is Gladys and she just turned a hundred. She's just a whip. I mean, she and I are good friends. She's an, she's a writer of his historical books all up and down the coast of British Columbia. And, and, um, and she wrote a book on the family history that was incredibly helpful because um, she told me about where my dad came from. Well, it turns out, you know, my grandfather destroyed my dad's ability to be a father before I ever showed up and his father before him. So this is a, this is a long a generational line. cycle. Yep. Of this kind of damage. And, and my dad didn't know how to be a father. He just, he didn't know how. And um, he was a, he was an incredible worker, um, uh, speaker, storyteller, all of that. And, uh, but he didn't know what to do with all this fury and he wouldn't go in there. He wouldn't go into that space of his losses. And so there was a contentious um, because I was so different. And then I, I ended up challenging him in his world. And he had, um, he'd been orphaned at 12. He was working in the, in the, in the uh, forest industry as a lumberjack by 14. At 18, he had a massive conversion to Jesus because two of his sisters drug him to a sawdust trail camp revival service. And then from there, he goes straight into Bible school in, in Saskatchewan where he meets my mom. They get married, have a child, and then the three of us go to New Guinea. So it's just like, you, you know, you don't see a, a real good path for inner healing in this man. And, um, and so <laughs> over the years, you know, I, I start going into theology. I start going in and not to become a professional, never wanted to become a professional pastor or anything like that. But that was the only world that made any sense to me. And, and I ended up being at loggerheads with him theologically and all the way along. And so over, the, over our lives, we never talked in depth about anything. Uh, we hardly talked at all, but, um, you know, um, uh, the conversations we did have were very, very, sur- I remember calling him on his birthday cause you know, he never, he never called me. And so I, I would call him on Christmas, call him on his birthday. I call him on this one. I'm in Amarillo, Texas. This is during the shack years. And, and I wish him a happy birthday in it. And we talked surfacy. And at the end of the conversation, he says, well, God bless you, brother. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I mean, uh, 
<clears throat> I mean, uh, my, my, uh, my son. So, so there were these moments and, and on his 80th birthday, um, I was up in uh, Vernon uh, where he lives, Vernon, BC. And I go for a walk and it, and it was like, I felt the arm of divine love that Papa God put an arm around my shoulder and it was almost tangible. And I'm just like, I'm struggling with, golly, how am I going to ever get anywhere in this relationship? I mean, he's 80 years old. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and I hear that inner whisper of this love say, hey, and, and God talks my language because, you know, God's, God's good at entering into foreign territory. And first thing is learning the language of the person that, in which he dwells, you know. So he knows all of our languages. And he says, Paul, you know your dad. And I go, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. You know, I, I know my dad. He goes, Paul, he hasn't known how to be a father for 60 years. He's not suddenly going to figure it out. And I went, I know that. And then I hear, well, if it's okay with you, I will be all that to you and more. And something broke in me. And it was the first time that I let go of any expectations that my dad finally get it, that my dad finally get to be a father to me, right? I let him go. And I, I grieved the loss, but an amazing thing happened. When you live with expectations, you draw a line beneath which nothing's acceptable as a gift, right? So if you are expecting something for Christmas and anything that is not that is not acceptable because you've drawn a line, that's very different than living with expectancy, which is wide open. And I had drawn a line in my relationship with my dad that says, this is not going to work until you are able to cross this line. And what God told me was he can't. He doesn't know how. And what happened was when I released him from that expectation, two things happened. One, everything became a gift. Everything. Everything was appreciated in a different way. Oh, and, and I let him go so that he could become a human being and not my father. See, I never allowed him to be a human being because he was first and foremost my father. And immediately our relationship started to shift and change because now every conversation wasn't loaded, right? It wasn't full of traps and minefields that inevitably somebody stepped on. It was, I'm there and this is a human being and we have history together but there is so much I don't know. And, and I'm, I'm not setting up an expectation that you relate to me like a father to a son. I am here because we are human beings face to face. And I started listening better. I started asking better questions. My curiosity grew. And as a result, our relationship as person to person has grown immensely in the last few years. So. On, and in fact, let me do this for you. This is... This is this is a treat. 
I got my, I've had three phone calls in my life from my dad. One was when Stephen, my youngest brother, was killed in a horrible accident in Vancouver. The second one was when my sister, Debbie, my dad called to tell me that she was pregnant out of wedlock. And, um, and the third was when my sister's first child was killed the day after her fifth birthday. Okay. Those are my three phone calls from my dad, right? Um, last year, my dad called me on my birthday. Now, he is now, he's 90 at the time, right? Yes. And he calls me on my birthday. And, and you can hear in his voice, because I, I, I didn't notice it, and I was in the middle of a birthday party, and I didn't pick up, but he left a message, a short message for me. And in this little message, you can hear him struggling with language. He's trying to right? find a way to say what he feels. Exactly. And so, you know, the beautiful thing is, is that I've got it. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just stick it up here and I'm going to play it for you because this is now one of those treasures in my life that um, there, there is nothing that uh, is is like this. So let me just make sure that I've got this on. And Hi, Paul. Uh, this is your dad, Henry. Uh, your dad from Vernon. Uh, just wanting to wish you a very merry, uh, happy birthday. Can still remember the day very vividly in my mind up in Grand Prairie, Alberta. And uh, it was a time of real joy. And you've been a good son, and I certainly thank God for you. Bless you, and have a wonderful day with you and yours, and I hope you don't overeat. Love you very, very much. Bye-bye. Paul, that, uh, that's so powerful, man. Uh, that's a long ways from God bless you, brother. Uh, and, yeah. and what you've described is a process of, of not only seeing him differently or, or accepting him on his terms, but you've described a person, your father, who has obviously peeled away some layers uh, to find himself uh, in that. So beautiful. You know, yeah. you, you observe something that I've often thought, but I don't hear often said, that much of the stress we have in life is consequent to other people not meeting our expectations. I don't know if, if, if you would agree with that, but... Uh, I would. Expectations are so much a part of our ordinary role, and, it's, and we're not even conscious of our expectations. But when other people disappoint us because they are not performing or relating to us or delivering or acting out in ways that we expected, it causes a huge stress and uh, the beauty of, of, of accepting someone where they are, as they are, uh, takes all that air out of the balloon of, of the stress and then maybe allows a relationship to grow, as you've just described. Expectations are driven by fear, and expectancy is driven by trust. And, um, and I'm telling you, expectations are disappointments just waiting to happen. You know... Every human being is a creative. We, 
there's nobody who's not a creative. And people tell me all the time, well, I'm not a creative. And I go like, do you ever worry? They go, well, yeah. I said, then, then you're a creative. You're a, I guarantee that you create scripts in your mind. You, you know? invented and you're, something. You're a movie producer. You're a movie director. You're, you're a screenwriter. And then you have roles for people to play. And when the actors don't play according to the script, which is a set of expectations, then you get mad, you get upset, the world is not working the way that you thought it was supposed to because you're the screenwriter. You know, how come they're not following the script? You know, you've already created the movie in your mind and they're not playing it out the way that you wanted it to. And that very basic creative process is when you wed imagination to fear because most of our... Most of our imagination is consumed and motivated by fear. I call it future tripping, creating things that don't exist rather than staying in the real world that is today, right? So in my script, I'm going to have a conversation with, you know, Ben Sand and and we're we're struggling in our relationship and i know what he's going to say cuz i've already written it <laughs> you in can my predict mind it. you know yeah yeah and and i know what i'm going to say and then he's going to say this and then i'm going to say this and we're going to be mad at each other we're never going to talk to each other again so why even talk to him now so i've played out an entire scenario based on fear or shame or combination and and then people i don't even take the risk of of playing it out and most people do not, and I'm speaking of myself historically, I never was able to be present. I was always gone. And, and fear never allows you to be present. Expectations are a future-tripping imagination, right? Well, that they're, they're the creation of an idea of how someone is supposed to respond and perform. And when they don't, you get pissed off. You, get, you, you feel betrayed. You get angry. You get all of these other things and a lot of it has has never even actually happened. Well, uh, don't you think our expectations once once we learn that expectations are unmet, then if I engage, I'm I'm prejudiced to believe well my expectations are not going to be met anyway. Even though I'm engaged, I'm defensive or I have a, a protective cover because uh, I've learned over time that people aren't always going to be able to be what I hope they'll be and so on and so forth. I mean, there's so many ways hope, in which that hope works. Hope is a kind word for expectation. It's not legit, but it's, <laughs> okay. it's well, we, we, we love to baptize our language so that it's more palatable to well, us. Well, let me just say, I, I tend to be hopeful, but I realize that expectations can be uh, also unrealistic. And to your point, to be driven or defined in our relationships by what we expect others to do instead of how we uh, allow ourselves to accept others as they are. Expectations don't exist in a world that is real. You have to create something not real for them to exist. Well, but right? you, but but could what's you say the, if what's I, the alternative? Well, the, but there are some realistic expectations. It's, uh, oh, it, it, my, the, the well, gravity is still going to be here. <laughs> well, couldn't I say, I do not expect Paul Young to murder me. I, I, my expectation is that you will not physically assault me. Now, that's a realistic expectation and fair. No, it's not. You don't think it's so? an imagination. Because you've had to you've had to imagine a scenario in which you know Paul Young was close enough to murder you. You you're not present because I'm not even close to you. So today it's not real. 
Yeah, okay. I, I, I'm with you on that. I, I, let me just disclose. I went to law school where you deal with hypotheticals. So I'm always running to the hypothetical. So you're right. Well, we're, we're because physically... expectations are legal. You know? <laughs> oh, now, now we're diving in. Yeah, because they're transactional, right? They're, they're yeah. what contracts are based on. Yeah. And they're, they're non-relational. They're, they're legal. And so, you know, it's, they're binding contracts of the imagination. And it's like, no, we're called to live a completely different way than that. We're called to live in the grace of today, to stay inside today where the real world is and relate to that person and that thing that is actually in front of us today. So that that leads me to ask you, what are your expectations of God? Or given your long journey and, and the challenges of it, how did you understand God in that time or now looking back on it? What are your expectations mm, of God? I don't, I don't have any expectations of God. I've got a relationship that is here and now. Okay. So if I've got a question, I can ask right now, do you still love me? Are you still in, in me? Um, is this situation that we're facing today, is it too big for you? Because I feel like it is. You know, This is about an honest relationship. It's about that the present tense. Absolutely. Because Any, you're, you're, anything that is real is in the present tense. What I'm hearing you say is you're not really concerned about your relationship to God tomorrow because that, that can only be imagined. Today Correct. is what is only relevant. That's, Correct. That's what you think. You, you can't get grace today for something that doesn't exist. But today, you have no expectation of God. You, you simply have an acceptance of the God that you know. Correct. And that, that's, that's been a long journey because part of that is that I had to let him go from the expectations, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, um, that my kind of way, which was wanting God to be the, the magician, you know, to pull the rabbits out of the hat, to be, uh, for me to find the right words to coerce God's um, performance in my life, to give, to give me the things that I expect from him based on what fear and shame and all these other crazy things that our, our lives are so enwrapped inside and, and instead learn how to just stay inside this relationship as it is in my journey today. This is, this is the real world. This is where love exists. This is to the degree that you don't experience joy, which is independent of circumstance, the sense of the, the abiding presence of love in your life to the degree that you don't experience that you're not present and joy joy never leaves we do we go into some imagination you know i don't know about you but my imagination was dominated by fear i've been to my own funeral a whole bunch of times (laughs) you know and i pissed me off i was the only one who didn't cry at my (laughs) funeral right i've ended up under Burnside Bridge in Portland in a cardboard box, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, you've got this huge interplay of fear-based imaginations. When you deal with fear, you're going to go one of two directions. You're going to either trust or control. And, and future-tripping fear-based imaginations are our desperate way to control to figure out what all the variables are and then try to control our environment and the people around us. This is where anxiety comes from. This is where, you know, to worry a knot is to pick at the knot, right? Mm-hmm. Worry is all to ask, what if this scenario or what if? And, you know, I've got a calendar. I made decisions about 
2020 and where I was going to be, all it took was one little tiny virus and it just blew that calendar to <laughs> shreds. Right. Right. right? Well, I don't have any control. Uh, I think you know? I think Jesus said something about that, didn't he? You know, today, <laughs> I think he said a lot today has that. enough stuff going on. Don't worry about tomorrow. Take no thought for tomorrow, yeah. right? Yeah. And even he, he says, even if you go say, I'm going to go to this town, like this is just planning, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's and it's just like, but say if I'm alive and God wills, because if you're not alive, it's not going to go well. And and. And also, this is the, there's a relationship involved. This is the same kind of language as when you stand before a king or a prince, I will give you in that moment what to say, mm-hmm. right? This is this interactive moment it's, by moment. It's very immediate. Yeah. So here's my, I got a verse for 2020. It's the first time in decades that God has given me a verse for the year kind of thing, you know? Right. And I overhear the Trinity and they're always going like, should we give Paul a verse for this year? And it's like, no, he gets too triggered, you know, and uh, it's because of all my religious background. And, and, but I got one and it goes like this, and this is for 2020. Encourage one another. So add, add, enlarge the heart of one another, right? Encourage one another as long as it is about today so that you are not swept away by the deceitfulness of brokenness, right? That's Hebrews 3.13. And today is all in caps in the New American Standard because in the Greek, it's all in caps in the sense that it's emphatic. Mm -hmm. And the whole section is about staying inside this grace, what is right here in front of you. Because frankly, Jim, my entire life, everything we've talked about, my world, where I've come from, my family history, the genetics of it all, it has all come to be right here, right now in this conversation with you. This is my whole life is here present. It's all you have right now. It's all we have. And it's all we have moment by moment. And yet we constantly leave it in order to, to try to, to grapple with imaginations and expectations that actually aren't grounded in anything that is real. Well, we try and right. live somewhere else outside well, of the moment. Yeah. 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 And then control it. And, and then that creates the expectations that then we then bring back into this world. So the person who's in front of me, I'm already mad at because they didn't perform well in my imagination even. I'm going to separate uh, your, your passion for the immediate moment, the, the present tense, from the concept of imagination because, or creation, because as you said, we're all creatives and you clearly are a creative persona persona because you have created some literature that uh, is very, um, what can I say, imaginative. It, it, It takes, maybe it's a design to take our present and help us to to re-see it, to see it differently. But uh, I, I have to say that when I was growing up, uh, you know, I, I was immersed in the classic literature of public education of the day when I was a child. I don't know if that still goes on. But one of the things that uh, uh, I was compelled to read was Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's famous allegory, which, I mean, it still has merit. And it's a f- fantastic read, uh, even though you have to navigate a lot of uh, language changes and so on and so forth. but And Pilgr- some of the theology. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there, there is a narrative, and he's projecting a, a train of thought, of Absolutely. course. Absolutely. But it is a masterwork, and I, I'm just suggesting it's... No question. Well, over the years, it, it became the bestseller uh, of books after the Bible, you know, for many, many decades. That's 
Pilgrim's Progress. Of course, most people today are not familiar with it. But I, I'm saying The Shack struck me that way. This is a book that sold over 20 million copies. I mean, in a way, you've moved into Bunyan's territory. You, you have uh, taken the stage in what I would describe as spiritually framed literature uh, to tell a story that speaks powerfully into people's lives who come from many, many different angles yep. and find themselves, I will say, proverbially at the shack. Okay, so let's let's talk about the shack, which which catapulted you into a uh, a place of sage status for many people because you so expertly, creatively, imaginatively uh, spun a story that makes real life in the present tense maybe more manageable. Tell me about the shack. How did you come up for that? I mean, obviously, just hearing your story says, oh, oh, I can see some of that coming out now in this uh, story. But uh, where did it come from? How did you develop this concept? And when you did, as you were doing it, did you have any idea that actually it would, it would travel the globe and, and reach so far and wide? Yeah, absolutely none, like zero, had no idea whatsoever. And um, because I, I never, it wasn't even on my bucket list to become like a, a, a writer in that sense. I wrote my whole life, poetry and songs and short stories and gave them as gifts to friends and family. Was that a coping mechanism? Like it was an escape. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know. So I, I read literature, um, the classics, you know, your, your Mark Twain's and your, you know, all, all of that. I read all of that in order to get out of my world. But I wrote, my, I wrote to get my inside world out. And a lot of the darker stuff that I wrote, I, I just destroyed. Because I, when I was younger, I couldn't take the risk that my dad would find it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so um, over the years, as I grew and as I healed, um, my writing became kinder and, and more, more other-centered, right? Um, and I went through, Kim and I, I, I married Kim, who is from North Dakota, Minnesota, where there's no Fifty Shades of Nothing, you know. <laughs> she, and, she and her five sisters are called the Force. She has two brothers, but the, the six girls in, our, in her family are the Force, and may the Force be with you. And so they're very powerful, strong people. And I'm, you know, that Kim saved my life. There's no question in my mind that she saved my life. But she paid an unfair price for it in, in a way. And that is um, all my inner damage had to come to the surface and she bore the brunt of that and unfairly. And, and it, we entered a, an 11 year journey. We didn't know it was going to be 11 years. Um, basically in, in 94, she caught me in a three month affair with one of her best friends. And um, that's, how long, it was either, how long had either, you been married? Before uh, we've been, we had our sixth child. Matthew, our our sixth child, was born. So you so had we've six been children. Like, yep. So and married a long 13 time. Thirteen years. All right. 13, and then you yeah. found yourself in an affair. She found you yep. also in it. She caught me. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And um, and the the beautiful thing about exposure and the terrifying thing about exposure, it opens up an invitation to either annihilation or or healing. That. You, you, there's very little other than that. And I, 
except you could you could run, you could try to cope again, you could go find and do your cycle again. I mean, but I was done. I hit the bottom. And I had to make a decision whether to kill myself or face her. Those that was it. And those and, were real um, choices for you? Oh my gosh, yes. Suicide had always been a friend in the sense that it hovered on the outskirts of of my experience always offering an invitation to run away the last time, right? Because suicide is not actually hitting the bottom. It's, it's running away before you hit the bottom. And, it's um, an escape also. It's an escape. It's for many people. And I know, uh, you know, there's been suicides in our extended family and things like that on my side. And, um, and I'm, I've been in the middle of that as well. And so I know that mental illness and, and other exacerbating elements are, are part that weave into that. But for many of us, it's like, especially, I think men do it in an impulsive moment where they just feel absolutely trapped or are so angry that they want to take it out on somebody and they feel only safe to take it out on themselves. But for all of that, it is an escape for me. And, and, um, and I pull the yellow pages off the shelf in Portland, Oregon, and I start under counselors. And I start with the A's and I work my way through and find a, a counseling center called uh, Agape Youth. Agape being the word for love, which is God is that kind of other-centered, self-giving love. And if anybody in that moment needed that, it was me. And, and so I made appointment with total strangers and walked in and that started a nine-month intensive dismantling of my life. Halfway through which I just about killed myself. And that's the last suicidal ideation I ever had was during that nine months. But that started an 11-year journey of, of rebuilding, like actually dealing with my stuff, actually allowing men to come into my life, actually taking the risk of trust. Kim was furious. I mean, it took Kim and I 11 years to heal. She um, was furious I, with you. Oh, my gosh. And... I, you know, I, I've nicknamed her the wrath of God and, and, um, and you know what? An affectionate I, I, term. It is. It's yeah. a deeply affectionate term because, because in my theology, I don't see the wrath of God as something that is against me. I see it as against anything that keeps me from being fully human and fully alive. And, uh, and it was the intensity of that fury that kept me face forward, continuing to move. And there was no guarantee. I didn't go to counseling to fix my marriage or to fix Kim. I mean, I knew at that point I had no capacity to fix myself. That this just, that was ludicrous. And, it, and, the, and the goal was I've got to get to the place where I am a healthy human being. And, and those 11 years were about reconciliation, which is the rebuilding of trust. And, and if that happens, which is for the sake of the perpetrator. You know, forgiveness is for the sake of the victim because that way they don't have to carry around the burden of the loss and the pain of that, uh, which is very encumbering and, and is imprisoning. Um, unforgiveness is a, is a prison and, and to forgive allows the victim freedom, right? But reconciliation, which is the rebuilding of trust, requires time and and consistency and confession and, um, you know, change, repentance to change over time. And, um, and at the end of those 11 years, she could say, and she did, in a group of friends, 
when asked, do you trust him? She could say, absolutely. And, but, but I didn't know if that would ever happen. So during this struggle of, of rebuilding and, and dismantling and rebuilding, the renovation of the heart, the shack, right? Mm. Which is where I stored all my addictions, hid all my secrets, never let anybody in there, built the facade outside the shack that I could paint as fast as I could pick up people's expectations. And that's who I related everybody to, but I was a different person on that painting to whoever the audience was. So there was nothing that was me, right? And, and, and so part of that journey was to come face to face with the fact that I didn't know if there was one thing that was actually true about me. And that's the worst. That's the second event where I actually had a trip planned to Mexico City because I was thinking, the only good thing that maybe Paul Young could ever do in his life was to at least to kill himself far away from his children so that they wouldn't be the ones that found his body. And, and um, got intercepted by a couple friends, went back to Scott, who was the therapist who became my friend and began to unravel all more. And, and at the end of those 11 years, for four of those last years, Kim would say to me, someday... I would like you to write a gift for our kids that puts in one place how you think because you think outside the box. Nobody and could I, figure it out if you don't write it down. Yeah. And, and, and I never felt healthy enough to do it until the 11 years ended. And it was the year um, uh, at the end of 2004 and moving in when 2005 began, it was almost like a light switched on. And 2005 was the 12th year. It was the year that I turned 50. So I had this sense of this could be my year of Jubilee. I'm sitting there thinking as this year rolls over, oh my gosh, I'm like one of the healthiest people I know. Like I don't have any secrets. I don't have any addictions. Not just I don't have no porn, which I hadn't had now for years and years, but but I'm not even addicted to doing something great for God, you know, which is my historical religious legacy. And I'm the firstborn of a firstborn, right? That kind of thing. And, and so uh, I don't have secrets. I don't have that. I, joy is a constant companion. And for the first time in my life, it feels like I'm a child. I get to be the child, right? And, and so all of these things had had coalesced and that was a year the in 2004 we lost everything materially we lost a house we'd lived in for 17 years through bankruptcy we lost I mean it had just been a horrendous year but part of the healing journey because one of my deepest fears was the fear of financial insecurity and mm -hmm. you know there's nothing like losing everything to help you That's face true. the fear of financial insecurity and worried about it tomorrow every day it's going to oh come tomorrow yeah yeah, that's future tripping fear, right? But it took 11 years to get down to that depth because, you know, there's a reason it says in God we trust on money. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And uh, <clears throat> so 2005, and I, I got nothing to give the kids that year. I'm working three jobs, right? We move into a little tiny little rental house on the corner of 12th Street in Gresham. I'm, I can walk to the Mac station because the creditors took our cars and all that kind of stuff. That's the public know. transit. Yep. And Kim walks two blocks down to Gresham High School, gets a job in their bakery. And um, so I'm working three jobs. We got this little 950 square foot 
usable space, little house on the corner of 12th Street. And joy falls on us like a ton of bricks. And my kids would tell you the two and a half years we spent there, um, Kim would tell you, I'd tell you, those are amongst the best years of our lives. And, and we had nothing. Some, some months we had $17 in, in the bank. Some months we had 35. I'm working hard. And, um, and I got nothing for Christmas. And, and I feel like, you know what? I think I'm, I think I'm finally healthy enough to write him a story. Less is now, more. Kim, Kim says, write something. Later she tells me, you know, when you wrote, I was thinking four to six pages, you know, just write something as a gift for our kids. So on the train, on the max train to my main job, downtown Portland with Encounter Collaborative, I wrote a story for my kids. And, and once it started to flow, I mean, it rocked and it just, it, I mean, I'm doing it on yellow legal pads. I'm doing it on the backs of napkins and, and garbage bags and, and whatever I had, you know, in the moment, it was a constant, like, I'm in this. And, um, and um, there was a Saturday uh, in which Kim was gone with the kids and I didn't have work. Probably the only Saturday that year. And I sat down at eight o'clock in the morning and in eight and a half hours, I wrote four complete chapters. The last one is, in, is called... Um, Festival of Friends in the Shack is the fourth of those four. And Festival of Friends is in the Shack without an edit the way I wrote it the Originally. day I wrote it. Yep. It is the only chapter never touched by an edit. Uh, and, and so I get it done. I get some money at Christmas and I go down to Office Depot in Gresham and on their photocopier, I make 15 copies of the Shack. And um, six went to the kids. Kim and I kept a copy and the extras I gave to my friends. I went back to work. It did everything. Those 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do. And it was done. And it, I, I never once crossed my mind to become a published author. It you had no expectation. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> because by this time, a, a phenomenon. I was learning to live inside the grace of the day. And I'm telling you, it, it is such a simple way to live, but it is profoundly difficult to get there because you, you have to decide to leave the prison you call home, right? Mm -hmm. the, what you're used to that gives you a sense of control and you have to begin to take the risk of trust. And when you got a little boy who was dismantled the way that I was. Trust was never an option. You know, this is why, you know, give me religion. Um, Cause then it's all about legal contracts and things I'm supposed to do, but trust, no. And so my whole journey was a journey in learning how to trust and, and fear will not allow you to stay present inside things that are actually real and matter. It always pushes you away from face-to-face -face and presence. And so, you know, I write, who knew, right? Well, the, this, so the, what happened? You have 15 photocopies from the office store. Well, <laughs> I did put a little plastic cover on it. Okay, and okay. Spiral so, thing I mean, on the side, you dressed so it up a little bit. That's, that's cool. But I did. How did it go from there to becoming yeah. this uh, phenomenon in publishing? You know, uh, I gave it to my friends. I gave the extra copies to ah, my those friends. Friends, they interviewed those friends. And by this time in my life, I have 
I have a dozen guys that I trust, right? Which I was mean, a threshold for you too, because you oh were not going to trust gosh. men given your upbringing. Men had done most of the damage in my yeah, life, yeah. you know, and they're the ones that I was competing with to find a way to gain a sense of, you know, validation mm -hmm. or, and, and constantly disappointed because I, you know, I wanted them to be my dad, right? you know, all of that kind of crazy stuff. So, so, you know, my kids, I give them a book for Christmas because it's all I had right that year. And they go, oh, a book. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad. We'll, the one you we'll wrote. Right oh, swell. Well, yeah, how do you turn it on? And uh, so, uh, you know, it took them a while to read it. And um, um, But my friends, I mean, they, they were all over it. And I start, you know, I'm working my jobs, and I get a call from a friend. And he's going like, Paul, can we get some more of these things? Because is it okay if I give them to my friends? I'm like, yeah, you can give them whoever you want. So we pulled a little collection. Me and my friends pulled a little collection. We made 15 more copies so that they could give it to their friends. Well, I start getting these emails. And, and they're not like, hey, I, I read your book. It was given to me by, you know, Joe yeah. Khalil or, and, um, uh, and, and I, and I, or Scott Klausner, you know, and I really love this book. It wasn't like that. It was like, I want you to know how your little book has landed in the middle of my great sadness. And they would begin to unfold parts of their life. And I felt like I'm being invited to walk on holy ground here. These are strangers you know, to you. Yeah. What, what's going on here? Well, I, I did this one thing this, uh, during this period of time um, where uh, an actual author had come and he needed a driver. And so I drove them all for about six and a half hours, drove them, you know, to Centralia. I drove them down the gorge. I drove them down Salem area, you know, all over the place because he needed a driver. And like, he's a for real author. Like he's actually written <laughs> like books had a and book published. published. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so we had kind of kept in contact after that day by email and stuff like that. And so I'm getting these emails and I'm going like, I wonder if he knows what, I wonder what he does. So I sent him an email going like, I wrote this little thing and I'm getting, look, and I give him snippets of the email. This is what I'm getting. What do you do? And he goes, what did you write? I mean, in an email. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I said, ah, oh. so I sent him an electronic copy of it and go like, you don't have to read it, but this will give you a sense of, yeah. of what it is. And he immediately goes into author mode of, he writes me an email. You know, Paul, I get asked to read people's books all the time. Trust me. You know, I've got probably 15 right there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he says, uh, it might take me like six months. I'm going like, I, I don't care. Just, I'm trying to figure out what to do with these emails. Do you write them back? Do you, what do you do? I mean, I'm like, I have no idea. And so he says, I'll, I'll, I'll help you with that, but um, I can't right now. So that was on a Friday night. Monday night, I'm down in the basement in this little tiny house, you know, and it's got, we, we created a make-believe bedroom down there for, for two of the boys. And, <laughs> and uh, it's got clothes hanging on, you know, wires and stuff like this for laundry. And, and I get a call. He calls me on the phone, this author guy. And he goes, what were you thinking sending me that manuscript? At least that's how I hear him. Yeah. In fact, I hear him say, what the hell do you think you were, why, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I'm literally backing up in the basement, like physically, I'm taking steps back. And, and I said, just throw it out. That's my response. Like, just, just forget if it. If it's a bother, just, 
no sweat, just get rid of it. Yeah, yeah, just throw it out. He goes, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. He said, I can't print the pages fast enough. I went, what? He goes, Paul, I, I don't think that I've read anything like this in years where my first response is, man, I've got 10 or 12 people I need to send this to like right now. I got, I really, I said, you send it to whoever you want. I don't care. He goes, well, I already did. <laughs> well, that started a conversation with him and two of his friends about initially about turning this book into a movie. That's where the whole movie oh. thing started was there. And then it was like, well, we met together and then it was like, well, maybe we should actually get it published because if you can sell a hundred thousand copies of a novel, Hollywood will come talk to you about a movie. Of course. Didn't know that, you know, that's less than one half of 1% of all novels makes it to 50,000. And if you can write a novel and sell 7,500 copies, you can put If you could sell 5,000 books of any kind, you have crossed the threshold. It's yeah, a bestseller, yeah, yeah. right? And I didn't know any of that, you know? So it's like, I'm just to totally naive in this whole journey. Well, that starts this whole craziness where, you know, we get... I'm working my three jobs, working on the edits and stuff like that over the course of about a year and a half. Um, they get a cover design thing going and we, we send it to 26 publishers, half of them faith-based Christian publishers, half of them totally secular-based. All of them turn it down, right? And, and they had two issues, uh, one in kind, both the, the religious publishers and the secular publishers couldn't figure out what genre it was. So their question was, we don't know where to put this in a bookstore. Is this self-help? Is it theology? Is it fiction? Is it, what is this? Yeah. And the issue separating them was the, the religious people thought, uh, the secular people thought it had too much Jesus and the religious people thought it was too edgy, mm -hmm. right? And so we got stuck. But actually, stuck. Jesus we and edgy caught. go together pretty good. <laughs> And so, you know what? We got, we got stuck between edgy and Jesus, and yeah. we found out there's millions of people stuck between edgy and Jesus <laughs> and had no idea. So the guys in California, they wanted to form a little publishing house anyway for their own stuff, so they did. And, and that became my first imprint, and we, we pooled our money together. One of the guys in my group of friends loaned me enough money for the first, my part of the first print run. And so three of us put in money for the first, we ordered 10,000 copies. We were told that's 8,000 in your garage after you've run out of friends and family. <laughs> yes, I wrote a book. Tell me about that. Yeah. Oh, and, and it was like, okay. So our goal was to get through 10,000 copies in two years, work our way to 100,000 in five years. Hollywood come talk to the guys about a movie. That was it. Yeah. I was back working my three jobs, you know? And in three and a half months into this, I get a call from California because uh, one of the guys volunteered to ship the books out of his house at night because he was putting in people's sprinkler systems into their yards during the day. And um, so three and a half months into it, I get a call. Uh, we need to order more books. I'm like, I know we gave a bunch away. Did we give them all away? What? He, he said, no, people, people, the only place you could buy the book was off the website, but the only place you could find the website was at the back of the book. We had no marketing, no promotion, nothing. Mm -hmm. Right, so it's really organic. Said, oh my gosh, people are coming to the website. They buy one, then they come back and they buy five, and then they come back and they buy cases. I'm going, really? 
So, you know, we ordered 20,000 and we went through 20,000 in 60 days. And then we went through 30, actually 22,000 because of overage, this thing where they're <laughs> yeah. allowed to accidentally yep. give you an extra 10% percent. But the book took it. off. I mean, it just oh. it exponentially uh, In the first 13 months. The public's attention. Before the guys in California entered a joint venture with Hachette that took the book internationally. In those, in those first 13 months, we spent less than... $300 in marketing and advertising and shipped almost 1.1 million copies of the check. The volume is phenomenal. All right. Unbelievable. So, uh, for all of those millions of copies and for the film, and uh, uh, there's a copy of the book uh, cover right there that has become itself almost iconic. And then a film was produced. I mean, you, you get headliners like Octavia Spencer to be in the film. That's no small gig. And uh, no, she's so, great. so powerfully... Uh, has it landed in so many people's minds? But I know there are some people that may not know the story. Don't give the story away. Just give us just a tiny piece of what is the shack. You've already actually introduced the the yeah. metaphor of the shack of your heart, your your inner self. Yeah. But but this is a this is a fictional drama. It's about some characters and how they cope. Yeah. So Mackenzie Allen Phillips is the main character. The daughter who gets abducted and murdered, Missy, is Melissa Ann Phillips. Both their names spell map on purpose. And I am both Mackenzie and Missy in the shack. You find yourself in both characters. Uh, very much so. You know, I'm, I'm Mackenzie whose child was abducted and murdered, you know, through the experiences of my childhood. And this is actually the dot of the story, is this, yeah. this disclosure uh, yeah. that his, yeah. his daughter has disappeared, she's been abducted, she's murdered. And then you yeah. find yourself in the girl too. Yeah, and, she's, and in terms of the story, she's missing, and you don't know exactly until later in the book. Um, but the shack is, you know, he gets invited uh, with a mysterious note. He gets invited to the place of this loss where they found the evidence that she had been murdered. Uh, up in the up in the mountains of eastern Oregon, and um, and um, and so the shack becomes this iconic representation of all the trauma and damage of his world. And he gets an, and the the way the note reads, it could be an invitation from the killer. It could be just a very bad prank, thoughtless, a, a cruel, uh, a cruel, uh, very cruel, or it could be. From God and and Mac has an historic, somewhat seeking, searching relationship to God, and and that has to do with his own childhood and the way that he grew up and the damage that was a part of that, and um, and so with a sense of either you know he takes his gun, a borrowed gun. Um, to go up into the shack to, to have a confrontation with whatever, even with nothing. And, and he is absolutely devastated in that place. He, Just going to the, the scene of the crime, as it were, is yeah. crushing. And, and because he had a hope that God would show up and God doesn't show up, right? Not, and and, and he's, he's, he's to the place where he is, I'm done. I hate you. I'm finished. You're not right. meeting my expectations. Right. And he just about takes his own life. He just about does it. Um, 
and he, but he's got other kids and he's, you know, and, uh, and he's, he's about to leave when everything begins to change around him. And the shack turns into this beautiful little cabin with a white picket fence and he hears the sound of laughter and he's just befuddled and he doesn't, I'm in this state. He doesn't know what to do. And he, and he raises his fist again, not to say I'm done and I hate you, but to knock. And he doesn't even get to knock and boom, out from inside comes a large black woman who just picks him up, spins him around and calls his name. And he has no idea what's going on. And he is then invited into the shack. And, and I mentioned the metaphor before, but there's metaphors throughout this. He ends up working in a garden. He ends up, and, and he's with three persons. Um, it's beautiful. It's in, it's in the movie and it's in the book where he's like, are you God? Which which one of you is God? And three, all three three independent characters, as it were. Three independent characters, three persons. Yeah. And for those who know Trinitarian theology, this is right in the wheelhouse of T.F. Torrance and and other Trinitarian, you know, theologians and scholars. But but for me, I I went to seminary. I went to Bible school, not to become a professional, but to find some answers. That's really what I did. And I studied philosophy and I studied psychology. I studied the sciences. I studied all of this stuff. And, and when it came to the Trinity, it was the only thing that possibly could make sense of how this universe functions and how we as human beings function. But I didn't like the way the Trinity was portrayed because it was always an analogy to inanimate objects, like three parts of an orange or three stages That's of right, water right, right. or three parts of an egg, all of them non-relational. And the journey uh, of theology that I'd gone into said over and over and over, centered in Jesus, that God is a relational being. But for God to be love, there had to be an other. And so this, the, the ancient conception that is grounded in the scriptures of, of what we call the Old Testament, but the Hebrew scriptures, and then in the writings of the New Testament, is that God is three persons, and they call it a perichoretic union, that is interpenetration one with the other without the loss of personhood. So that there is truly other-centered, self-giving love, which is the word agape. So I'm trying to go like, so how do I write this for my kids? That's your audience originally. Completely my audience. And I'm like, if I wasn't here, if I got, you know, some brain aneurysm or something and I wasn't here, what would I want to tell them? And that's why I wrote The Shack is to say, so, this is what I want you to know about me. This is what I want you to know about God. This is what I want you to know about you. You know, and I put it inside story because story is the best way to communicate truth. Um, well, ask Jesus who loved It's parables. such an extraordinary insight. Paul, because when I think about this book, The Shack, uh, and all of its impacts, to just kind of revisit it with the lens, you wrote this for your children. Uh, you know, yeah. you, you take some punches whenever you're out there. A book like this that has such broad appeal and goes to so many places, generates its own controversies, and people have all kinds of analysis. But, you know, it's a really interesting frame. This was a book written for the author's children to communicate to them what he considered of greatest importance yeah. of understanding. 
it was not your intent to turn the world upside down per se, but to, oh, speak, to speak into their lives. Consequently, the world has in a way been turned upside down because you have stretched and challenged the horizon of imagination about some things that sometimes we put in small boxes. But you ha you've written the shack, and I, I don't want to give away all of this, but you've done a great job setting up the a plot line that still has some more to read. And I just want, if you have not read The Shack, folks, go pick up a copy. And I have to say, I've I got one right here signed by the author. So fine. Thank you for this. Signing books was such a weird deal. I well, got to tell you. Well, you know, it was like, you sign books? Yeah, really? I know. But you know what that is? It's what you're just preaching. It's relational. Uh, you can't yeah. sign every book. But boy, when you signed a book for me, a guy you're going to see on a screen, that's very relational, Paul. Thanks so much. But yeah, and, that, and it turned out to be a beautiful way to tell people that they matter, you know? Oh, for sure. And, uh, and, 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 and It's an acknowledgement of your individual is. self. All and, right. and even in a book signing line, let me tell you, talk about walking on holy ground. I've never stood behind a table and I, I hug everyone unless there is a, a sense that touch is, is a dangerous yes, thing mm -hmm. for that person. And it can be, you can understand that. Oh boy, and and I can usually feel it way ahead of you know, and then I then it's a matter of can I have permission? And I've I've been allowed to hug some people who have never allowed anybody to touch them. I mean, and I'm telling you, um, and that is because they they find themselves in this story. They find themselves, and they and hugging has become a sacrament in that sense. It's just, it's just a way to connect. Um, well, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, and you get, the, you get to hear beautiful stories. I'm sure you've heard a lot of stories. Let me just uh, offer one anecdote for you. A book like this, where you have uh, God showing up in a shack with a person who's experienced a tragedy, in the person of a, a black woman. I mean, all of that immediately pushes some people to the edge of the cliff, uh, and people, and, <laughs> and some folks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm just saying that uh, there, there are people who have had question marks and you know criticisms and so on, on on many levels about this fictional story. But I know of people who have thrown stones at the book and then discovered someone they loved who knew nothing about God or was in no relationship to God and could have cared less about Jesus or couldn't comprehend Jesus, read the book and became a follower of Jesus because Absolutely. the power of the story opened up a heart store. So I mean, you can know a tree by its fruit, and there's some really good fruit in this narrative. Now, you have written other books, and you have just published a book last September called The Pastor. Uh, with Brad Jerzak, yeah. With Brad Jerzak. A Jerzak. crisis. The pastor of crisis. And, it, and I have just read that one through. And it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shorter story than The Shack, about 140 one pages or so, um, and it tells the story of a pastor. Now, I've spent a lot of my life, most of my adult life, as a pastor. So I'm, I'm thinking, well, okay, well, where's this going? And it's a story that has some similar themes. Now that I'm hearing you talk and, and I'm kind of connecting the dots to your other writing, uh, that, that talks about the inner struggle and, and how a pastor uh, on stage... Uh, chasing one thing, presenting one thing, who might actually have a backstory that he's he's reluctant to face, which causes uh, a crisis uh, in a moment. And this is a story that takes place uh, about a pastor who is never named, uh, 
but he is a pastor in a mental hospital consequent to coming to terms with the reality of where he's been, how he got there, and, and the generational uh, totality of it. I mean, what, what brought the pastor out of your heart and head? Uh, why, why this book on the table? Uh, because, one, pastors are easy targets, unfortunately, in the sense that they are people of notoriety who sit in the space that is very significant in the lives of so many people. And a lot of people, and, let me tell you, have expectations of their pastor. Oh, it's a prison. <laughs> Living you know? to that is a really hard road. Let me, t- I'm, I, I bear witness. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yep. And, and like you said, everybody's got a backstory. Everybody's story matters. And, and here's, here's the underlying theme. The unexposed is the unhealed, right? The secret. If, Whatever is the secret, whatever, you know, um, when it's, I, I used to think about that verse that said, uh, you know, what you've said in secret or what you've done in mm-hmm. secret will be shouted from the rooftops, you know, mm-hmm. and that was like, oh my gosh, how horrific, terrifying, you know, terrifying, you know, <laughs> yeah. and yet that's not a threat. That's a promise. And it's a promise that if we can get this stuff from inside out, there is the possibility of wholeness and healing. The unexposed is the unhealed. And so you are as sick as the secrets that you keep. And in so many situations, and a pastor works very well because you've got a persona and it's even uh, exacerbated by the religious set of expectations around it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, un- sadly, institutional Christianity or religion in general is, is almost requires that you hide because you will be punished for anything that gets exposed. And so people who bring brokenness into those places have to maintain the facade of mm-hmm. their perfection yes. in order to maintain the approval ratings in order to get their job security insured, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a horrible system that way. And, um, and so Brad and I both, we wanted to to deal with a couple basic questions. Is there anybody who is so damaged that they cannot be healed? And is there anyone who is irredeemable? That is, that, that reaches the point of destructiveness where it's not a possibility. And, and our answer to both those questions is a resounding no. There is nobody who is irredeemable and there's nobody who is so lost that they cannot move in the direction of wholeness. But it requires going through hell, right? Mm-hmm. It, the fiery, um, uh, the refiner's fire is still a fire and everybody gets salted with fire. That's a scripture. And, um, and so, you know, this pastor is, he's exposed, n- not by his own choice, but by the rising of his own damage from within him. And he's a, he's a very hellfire damnation preacher, but... Here's another, another reality is a lot of times moral outrage is confession. You know, people who are really morally outraged at something, oftentimes that's personal confession. Is it a projection? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so he ends up in a psych ward. And then it's like, so now what? And you have these different characters. Interestingly enough, a lot of the best work in the pastor 
our actual, with, with permission, um, texts and emails, the language of people that we know. And the pastor is, is a composite. You know, all the characters are You're saying that the story itself actually yeah. reflects the real uh, conversations that people yeah. have, have given you permission to incorporate Absolutely. into this. Wow, that's startling. Oh, because I read that they're, they're very, very raw. Yep. And it's, and, and that's, we have a trigger warning, but not to keep people away. It is actually, especially for people who have been hurt this way, it is a cathartic way to go through. We have a, <clears throat> we have a friend, uh, Brad and I, who, um, um, she, she was abused by her dad for years around the issue of food and became an anorexic. And mm-hmm. so, you know, she, if she eats, um, two cookies, she has to literally go out and run a marathon length mm-hmm. to overcompensate to punish her body, mm-hmm. to punish herself. And so she ran listening to the audio version of the pastor, which we highly recommend because it's theater for the mind. It's voice actors who, who put this together. It's fantastic. And, uh, by, uh, Boyd Barrett. And, um, She's running, listening to it, and she writes us later, and she says, at first, I hate the pastor. I hate him. And then I begin to love the pastor. And then I begin to realize that I am the pastor. And It's a real and, progression. And, oh, and she began to walk through the elements of that healing journey that requires relationship, it requires exposure, it requires confrontation, and it requires the work of the Spirit of God that only God can do. You know? in, in, in the book, uh, there is a kind of resolution. It, it doesn't altogether resolve the story. The, Correct. The, the pastor's journey in life is not finished by the end of this book, but a, a page is turned, and there is a I'm sorry, I have to use the word, there's a kind of a hopeful moment at the end <laughs> where where the reader is left to, oh, well, uh, this may have a future. This guy may have a future after all. In all of that, uh, he comes to a, a nadir in his experience where he is so self-loathing as he, as he comes to terms with his own depravity. And, and he's just, I mean, he's so filled with remorse, but also just hatred for himself, I think. Yeah. And, and he's offered a way out by the love and grace of God. Uh, I mean, you have some characters that appear as in the shack, so to speak, that, that, have, that reach him with this choice. And I guess what I'm saying to you, Paul, is what struck me is that reading the pastor, I saw you making the point that our, while this loved grace is universally available, in other words, God is, is not a respecter of persons. He's not holding it for some and not offering it to all, but that there's an important transaction, if that's the term, of receipt of the gift. He has to make a choice. And in the book, it's very clear. He teeters for a while. He teeters on the edge of, I'm just going to take what I deserve, which is oblivion, or I will choose to receive the the implausible and the extraordinary and the hard to even comprehend reality that I could be loved knowing who I am. And, and that that moment of choice, tell me, was that is that a key for you in the story? Absolutely. And, and, it's, and it's a key in the shack. It's in the key in the crossroads. It, it, you know, it's in all, everything that I write. Um, if God 
makes the choice for you at any point, you no longer have a universe in which love is possible. Mm. Your yeah. no has to matter. Yeah, yeah. Because if your no doesn't matter, then your yes doesn't matter either. And, and that's the crux. We have such a low view of humanity that we have stepped away from our own ability to choose. And we'll use all kinds of excuses for why and point and finger shift and blame and all that kind of stuff, rather than owning the incredible creation that we are that has an ability to say no to love. And that's really critical. What struck me, this, this will seem like a bizarre uh, connection from your book, The Pastor, but I, I, I'm telling you where I connected in this moment of that passage of the book. I guess back to, I, I went to law school, I'm not a, an attorney, I didn't practice law, but uh, one of the things I learned is, is about, in Anglo-Saxon law, there's a premise, a gift is not a gift until it's received. And it's often illustrated in a 19th century case where there's this young woman, she lives out, I don't know, Philadelphia or Baltimore, 19th century city girl. She has an uncle out in Nebraska or somewhere, owns a farm. She's single. He wants to give her the farm. He writes her a letter and says, I want to give you the whole farm. You can have all of it, these hundreds of acres. And she's out in the city, single woman thinking, I'm in the, this is the 1800s. I'm, I'm not taking a farm in Nebraska. It's just nuts. But he, she has the letter. Later, she gets married. She and her husband are trying to uh, uh, you know, make their way. And somehow he stumbles on the letter or gets this idea that the uncle wants to give the farm away. And he says, let's go do that. I'm in. Let's go do that. So then she, she writes back to the uncle and says, hey, I've changed my mind after all. I want this uh, farm. And he says, well, no, I've decided to take it otherwise. And so she sued him. I mean, this is a real case. This, isn't made, this is not a hypothetical, Paul. This is the real deal. She sues him on the letter saying, you made a promise to give me the farm. And the, and the rule of law that comes out of it, the court ruled against her saying, well, you can't sue for the gift because it's not really yours until you receive it. A gift is not a gift until it's received. In a strange way, that connects to the gospel for me. <laughs> it's a, you know, I have to give this to you but it's not operative until I receive it, until I make the choice to say, you know what? Yeah, I want that. Otherwise, the benefit is not mine until I make that decision. That's what I found in the pastor. Yeah. The word operative is so important. It's not operative. It's, it's real. It's true. Yes. You know? Um, but it's impact. But, yeah. it's, it's influence. It's capacity to, to redeem me. I have to receive it. Yeah. And, you have to participate. Uh, and, and Paul, as you've unpacked your story and I've listened to your, I mean, really compelling. I mean, I, I get you're writing fiction, but come on, when are you going to write the, the autobiography of real life and events, uh, which, which may, end, may, may take us to the same place? You sound to me like a, a guy who went through a lot of that same journey and came to a place where you said, you know, I'm, I'm taking that. I'm receiving that gift that God has offered to me even though it doesn't make sense and I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't presume to own it, except that God has helped me see that I am worthy of receiving it from him because of who he is. And, and you know what? It's a daily, it's a daily assumption, right? Yeah, it's, it's today. Immediate. It's, it's today. Today, it's am, am, day. I, am I participating? Today, am I engaging? Today, am I telling God the truth about where I'm at? Yeah. Am right. I being honest? Yeah. 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 Okay, so 
you talked about going to Bible college. You and I went to the same school. I'm thinking I got there before you. I went to Warner Pacific in Portland, Oregon. I did. I went there for one year. Well, I went there for one year. I got there in 1970. What year did you get there? I got there in 77. 77, oh, I mean, 78. We were just ships. 77, 78. Just ships passing the night. Okay. Yep. But my, my point is that that school is formed in, in my a church family's history uh, in the Church of God. And it it has at some points a kind of countercultural history. Many people don't think of it that way who are in the Church of God. But I mean, we were a people when uh, the world was segregated in our early years, we said, we're not doing that. It doesn't matter what your color is. We're 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 coming together as one in Christ. That kind of it was very countercultural. We were a, a, a tribe of people who, when women could not vote, and there was this clear demarcation uh, of male and female roles in the society, we were people who were fully embracing women in ministry. I mean, our churches were led by women, and so on, in a way that was very countercultural. You can't vote in the presidential election, but man, we think you can run uh, run this uh, ship. What I'm saying is there's a kind of countercultural vibe in the history of the people I call my church home. Your, your narratives, your fiction, has a kind of countercultural vibe. Do you think mm-hmm. so? Uh, do you oh, see that? True. And, and where? Put your finger on it. One is that uh, the, to be countercultural, all you have to do is say that the one matters, that the one person matters. That, that right? defies the culture, in your view. It absolutely defies the culture. Um, the other thing is that, um, th- that our, our comprehension of, of community and covenantal relationship versus contract and law is contracultural. In, in other words, say, say we're talking about marriage. People can enter into marriage as a form of contract set with expectations. And then, you know, the, the legality is like in any contract, if you do this, I do this. And, and uh, here, here are the remedies when you don't do what you're expected you to do, right? Contract, yeah. Right. In a, in a covenantal relationship, it is an agreement even if it's only by one person as it is with a parent and a child, but in a marriage, it's an agreement of two people together to make the barriers that impede intimacy, the enemy and never each other. Right. So, so that's countercultural because systems don't work like that. It's more family is true. Family is countercultural, right? Because a, a healthy family moves at the speed of the slowest institutions don't institutions move at the speed of their vision, their mission, their leadership, their hierarchy, whatever. And usually it's the weak and the, and, and the broken that get uh, shunted off. It's countercultural because at the center is this other centered self giving love, not selfless, but self giving, which means that there has to be a sense of self and love for self that is at the, to make it whole. who you are, right? It can't be whole unless you have both sides of that equation. Absol- absolutely. And, and, and it's also that we don't put our trust in systems and, and fear, and we make choices to, to love the person who's in front of us and respond directly here. All that's countercultural in the sense that you know, we're inundated with masses of social media. We're asked to engage with all the problems of the world and take them on. And it's like, 
no, there has to be a simplicity to life where I get to be the child. Children are by nature countercultural. Right? Well, in, in that equation of relationship then, which you define as countercultural, a covenantal uh, relationship in your vocabulary, is there a responsibility dimension? I think maybe this is where, where somebody might stumble trying to figure this out. In a contract, uh, I, I have a certain stability because I know what uh, my responsibility is and, and my partner's responsibility might be. Uh, in a covenantal relationship, do you think there's an assumption of responsibility? Or is it is as simple as you have to find that if if your object in the relationship, in a marriage, for instance, is, is to simply remove barriers to intimacy, that's enough. And that any other kind of definition of responsibility will flow naturally out of that pursuit. Absolutely. This is why if you were going to write a good book on marriage, you'd need one per marriage. Right. Because there's no two people who are the same. Therefore, we weren't created for marriage. Marriage was created for us, just like the Sabbath, you know, and uh, and it's it's like, no, the uniqueness of who we are. So the simplicity of our covenant with each other, that we are going to make the barriers, the enemy. And the barrier might be in me in the given situation. It might be in you. It might be in our circumstances, might be in our extended family, whatever it is. We have to if work it is on preventing, that. If, if it's presenting true knowing, we're going to go after that together. And would you say that if in that covenantal relationship, that that's the, back to marriage as our our uh, our case here, and that that's the simple definition of the commitment and the responsibility, that there are consequences, could be positive consequences, outcomes for pursuing that honestly and authentically. There could be negative consequences for failing to do that at some point in the relationship. That consequences matter, that, that that's a part of our calculus yeah, uh, absolutely. in these relationships. Yeah, but uh, the consequences are going to flow out of, of the daily interaction and activity of today, right? And, and my, uh, you know, my verse for 2020, my phrase for 2020 was trust the ripples, trust the ripples. That is, be engaged and involved. You know, bring everything you've got to today and to the conversations and to the interactions and to the work that you have and trust the ripples. You know, otherwise you're back to future tripping the ripples and you're back to future tripping the process and you're engaged in things that don't exist anymore and you're asking for grace for things that don't exist anymore rather than no, this is what's actually in front of me. Yes, consequences are part of life. You know, um, and it, you're, you're not going to control it. Control is not the option here. It's, it's not control that takes away fear. It's love that does. And so love is this powerful reality within the grace of today in terms of what happens. The consequences will flow from that, but we'll be able to engage those consequences in the grace of that day that we need to. Yeah, so we can, we can endure or cope with the consequence, even of our folly, uh, if we are uh, set right in our ownership of the love of the relationship. Yeah, because consequences itself is a form of future tripping. I mean, you're already imagining what they are. <laughs> yes, but I, I'm right. just, I'm just uh, thinking through in my commitments. When I make a commitment of the kind of purest, most holy kind you've described in a marriage, and and in in my perfect self, I would say, I got it. 
But there's a part of my commitment that's framed also by the reality. If I'm tempted to not honor that, there, there is a consequence too. Uh, and, Absolutely. And, and so that, that's my everyday decision. Just like you said, we, every day we have to recommit to, to that loving God, to that loving relationship, to that, uh, that definition of ourselves, that that's what's going to govern me. And, so, and, and that's and countercultural. And because, that's countercultural. Because right. this culture is based on performance, based on right. legal transactional what law. I can What I can deliver. And yep. uh, maybe apart from even how uh, it's morally ordered or um, what's right or best of the moment, it's about my deliverables. And we end up with comparison instead of contribution. That whole comparison thing. Wow. They're, they're, man, I'm going to get you on a podcast again. We'll, we'll talk about that. But for today, before we go, you, you're, you're writing, you're th- and it's not just your writing, Paul, it's your thinking, uh, your writing represents your thinking, have been so influential and have catapulted you to front and center stage sometimes. I mean, you've you've been a speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast. I mean, Oprah wants to talk to you. <laughs> How many people could raise their hand with that? Not that that, in comparison, I could compare myself and say, I'm just a zero, Paul, but I'm not doing that. I'm just saying, you have been given opportunity to stand on a stage. And sometimes... Uh, as you've described yourself, that's not anything you had ambition for. It's kind of just evolved. But that can be a hard place, it seems to me, that the, the more public stage you have, the more of a target you are or a more of a challenge you can be or more challenges maybe you face. I mean, have you experienced that? Would you say that, man, there's a part of me that wishes I had just kept that book for my kids because I have taken... Uh, enough controversy consequent to it being a global phenomenon? Or are you saying, oh, man, I'm just glad for this, that's today's reality, and I am, I'm good for it? Yep, it's, it's the latter. It's like, well, to, to go back and to imagine what would have happened if these things hadn't unfolded the way they had. You know, somebody asked me, you know, if you could go back and change anything in your childhood, in your life, and the choices that you made, and and the shack would never have happened, this notoriety and platform would have never happened, and it would cost you all of this, would you go back? And I say, in a heartbeat, if I could go back and change one time that I hurt someone, and it cost me all this, I'd do it in a heartbeat, right? Mm-hmm. And And that just tells you, that notoriety and platform are a cross to bear in a sense, but, but you do it on a daily basis. You know, it's, it's smoke and mirrors. You know, I'm, I am not different in terms of value to anybody else on the planet. Um, and, and yet I get to participate in these kinds of ways for the purposes of love, as far as I'm concerned. And if it all went away tomorrow, I'd be absolutely fine. You know, Everything that matters to me, I'm surrounded by. Because it's not defined you. No, it doesn't at all. And that's no small and, thing, Paul, really. Uh, it's a great grace. And I, you know, I don't imagine, imagine in a, a proper sense, because you can have your imagination wedded to love that produces beautiful things, good things and right things, powerful things. Um, imagination wedded to fear produces really harmful things. And, and, um, uh, and I look at my life and, and I am 
I would never want to go through the, the hellish process of the restoration of my heart. Again, I never, but I'm grateful every day for it. Yeah. Grateful every day. And it doesn't justify adultery. Nothing justifies adultery, but it, but it shows me that God can climb into our stupidity and brokenness and damage and redeem it. Yes. Right. I, I have developed a, a way of thinking, or I often say, you know, God doesn't waste anything. No. Even anything the, that is real. Even well, and He doesn't waste anything. Even the hard stuff. It, yeah. Or maybe it's not real, but I thought it was. Whatever my experience was, He doesn't waste it if it's surrendered to Him to pick up. If, if I can just lay it down, you've talked a lot really about surrender here, about just kind of laying down our expectations and our, our, our fears and so on. So Engaged surrender. Engaged surrender, yeah. It can't be just passive. Correct. And which at last I, I want to just reflect that a lot of what you have talked about and have expressed in your writing has to do with this idea of shame, the sense of... Of, of shame that becomes a prison, it, it becomes a bar, it becomes a, a torture chamber. I mean, your characters often wrestle with shame. And, Absolutely. And, and you have disclosed in your own journey how shame played a role. And, I, and everybody, I think, understands shame and everyone has experienced shame, perhaps at different levels and for different reasons, but that's a real thing. What would you say today to somebody you know, that a universal, there, there are certain universal experiences in human life that we all share. Today, there's a universal experience of shame. What would you say today to someone who was listening to our conversation, who's mm. experiencing some mm. real shame? And they know it. They don't, they're not speaking it, uh, but they feel it. They want to yeah. be free of it, but they're not sure that that's really for them or it could be them. Or it's scary to let go of the shame because it's created a, an environment that I have learned how to go from one day to the next. I mean, what would you say yeah. to that person about their shame? First, I'd say you need to distinguish in your own mind the dis difference between shame and guilt. Guilt How'd is I, I have done something wrong. And that's real because we hurt each other. And it's honest. Sh yeah. Shame is I am something wrong. Mm. So it's an ontological statement. It's a statement of being. And Shame has absolutely no place in the human experience. It's the it's, devil's it business. Is, it is an enemy right from, the, right from the very beginning. It's what turns your face away from face to face, which will tell you the truth about who you are. And, and, and so shame is I am something wrong. And I would say you're not. You, the way of your being may be all messed up. But the truth of your being is, is not anything that is wrong because I absolutely believe that you are made in the image and likeness of a God who is good, who is love, that you by nature, the deepest truth, the diamond that you are that may be covered over by a whole bunch of shit, right, that is buried under crap, that that diamond is there and it is it, it, it cannot be broken, it can be covered, it cannot be internally violated the person you are is not a person in which shame has any place so the truth of your being is you're made in the image and likeness of god so you have worth and, and value oh my goodness and and, and, and to differentiate promote. though between can shame yeah. be be a byproduct of guilt i feel so guilty about what i did 
Oh, shame, shame, shame will be a byproduct of anything. Well, okay, but can I? I can own my guilt, which is a way of saying I can own responsibility for choices I have made. Yeah. But even as I own that, I I must not let uh, the accusation I, I about be de- the truth of who I am. I must not be detoured into thinking that I have no value consequent to my conduct. Or that even the choices that I made define me in terms of my identity. Mm-hmm. So, Because we're talking about, when we're talking about ontology or the truth of your being, we're talking about your identity, how you see yourself at the core. And this is where shame will just lie to you. And, and <sighs> shame is so pervasive that it can become your identity itself. Right, that you just like ah, oh. and, and unfortunately, a lot of our Christian theology in certain circles, mine included, in my history, was that we exacerbated that lie. We said, "Well, no, you are totally depraved. You are um, irresolutely evil. That you have a sin nature." And when you're talking about nature, you're actually talking about ontology, wholeness, coming to wholeness, integration of the soul is when the way of your being is an expression of the truth of your being. And so the way of your being is your behavior, right? It's, it's your choices on all of that. What is the truth of your being? If you think you're a piece of crap, guess what? You'll end up acting like one and you'll end up thinking like one and you'll let people treat you like one. Because as a person thinks in their heart about the truth of who they are, so becomes the way of who they are. And, and so many of us hear all the whispers, you know, my friend, theologian Baxter Kruger calls them the I am nots. I'm not enough. And we're back to comparison culture, right? Mm-hmm. And, and all these things that whisper in, you're just, you're, you're a fraud. You're going to be found out, you know, you're alone. And, and if they find out who you really are, which of course is you're a piece of crap, right? Is that then then they will withdraw from you any bits of light that they have tempted to offer. So you need to perform and not let anybody find out the truth of who you are. But that's because we begin with the assumption that the truth of who we are is worthless. And when we have grown up experienced, you know, kids who have been orphaned, kids who have been, been um, uh, moved from foster home to foster home or whatever, whatever, and have experienced abuse as children or been sold or, you know, what do they think about themselves? They think about themselves in terms of the experiences that they've had. That's how they define their identity. And, and we, need, we need Jesus to show up and say, let me tell you the truth of who you are. Let me shine a light. I'm, I'm the truth of who you are. You know, kind and patient and loving and, and someone who can stand up for, for things that are true and right and against that which is destructive and harmful. You know, all of these things are wedded into the incredible nature of what it means to be a human being. But we've been so buried inside of shame and fear that we've lost sight of it. And we need the revelation, the enlightening of God to open up our inside eyes to begin to take the risk that I'm, you know what destroyed my porn addiction? And I'm telling you, there is nothing more shameful than that in terms of uh, of a constant reminder that you're just a piece of crap because it's it owns you right and um, and I hadn't unraveled all the reasons why 
um, uh, porn was an imagination of a relationship in which I was loved and cared for rather than taking the risk of a real one. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I tried everything. I mean, I tried discipline. I tried self-discipline. I tried Running two miles marathon after you ate oh, two cookies, <laughs> that kind of thing. Come on, yeah. you yeah. know, all of that kind yeah. of um, stuff, you know, prayed and fasted and, and, and I'm constantly, it, it was awful and it just cycled itself, you know, and the next, then the next time that you masturbated, you just thought, there I go. I'm see, I am a piece of shit, right? Mm -hmm. What destroyed it was in the midst of beginning to work through my stuff, coming to the place where I realized that the truth of my being was that I was made in the image and likeness of God. And that meant I was pure of heart. Oh my gosh. I'm pure of that. That's the truth of my being. It's not that I'm trying to act like I'm pure of heart, covering up an ocean of Jump. bad ontology, right? Yeah. yeah. That God and made you to be pure of heart. I am. Yeah, yes, but I mean, heart. but that's how you originated. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's not only how I originated, how I still am. It's just right. buried inside of all right, this right, stuff, right. and therefore it's like, oh, and I have self control. Those are both, you know, that's fruit of the spirit, right? The Holy Spirit who lives within me has wedded and and created a union between me and the divine nature of God, such that I can now live according to the very being of the presence of God in me, who is Jesus, and it liberated for me. you. Oh my gosh. Suddenly, suddenly it's like, oh, so, so if I slipped uh, at this point, what was the lie? You know, what did I go back to thinking about myself or what, what, what was the underlying lie? Is that, oh, you're alone. You're alone. That's a lie. I'm never alone. Right. Or, or whatever it is, but, but it destroyed. I haven't had an issue with any of that for decades now. And, and it's like, how did that happen? It wasn't an accountability group, you know, that was just too smart that I couldn't get around. It wasn't some form of self-discipline. It was self-control. Self-discipline comes from the outside in. Self-control comes from the inside out. Well, or another so, way, yeah. the truth sets you free. Exactly. The and truth, the truth is a person. The truth of Jesus who showed you who you are. The truth, who is Jesus, who showed me who yes, he is right. and therefore revealed who I am in him. By that light, wow. You know what? Um, when I think about the word shame, the, and I don't know if this is sound English language, I'm not an English major, but uh, an antithesis of shame would be pride. Or uh, I'm ashamed of this, I'm proud of that. Let me just say, proud to know you, Paul Young. Oh, Thanks I'm so honored to know you. Thank you and so much I, for sharing today. I so today. appreciate this. And thank you, Ben, for putting this together and Carly for helping out and, and all the crew that you have there. It's, it is an honor to spend this holy ground time with you. Great to be in your company, Paul. Keep writing. And, oh, and be careful. Be careful. Now, um, we, now we know where you live. You're in Washington and <laughs> Brush Perry. I'm guessing I could track you down. Be careful. Easy. All right. Yeah, our, our doors are open, All except right, with, with COVID stuff, you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> hey, that's, that's tomorrow's problem. Today, we're good. Today, we're great. That's right. All Blessings. right. Godspeed. Thanks so much. Thank you. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.